everyone, welcome to The Empowering Neurologist. I'm Dr. David Perlmutter. We've got a great show today. We're going to be talking about this amazing book called The Longevity Diet, and we'll be speaking with Dr. Walter Longo. Uh, it's going to be, I believe, a very, very uh, important uh, interview, giving some really uh, incredible information. I say that because uh, he's quite a guy. I'm going to tell you all about him. Uh, he is the Edna M. Jones Professor of Gerontology and Biological Sciences and Director of the Longevity Institute at the University of Southern California Davis School of Gerontology that deals with aging. That's based in Los Angeles. Uh, he is also the Senior Group Leader uh, at the IFOM and the FIRC Institute of Molecular Oncology Foundation and holds four-year professorships uh, uh, across various top European Union academic centers. So he has a global impact uh, in terms of his work. Uh, his studies focus on the fundamental mechanisms that are involved in aging, uh, not only in simple organisms, but also in mice and in humans. The Longo Laboratory has identified several genetic pathways that regulate aging in both simple organisms and reduce uh, the incidence of multiple diseases, both in mice uh, models as well as in humans. His laboratory has also investigated and described uh, how dietary and genetic interventions uh, might be able to reverse uh, such things as diabetes and even Alzheimer's and ultimately protect cells and improve the treatment of cancer and other diseases uh, that are found in mammals. Uh, his most recent studies are on the dietary interventions that can affect stem cell-based regeneration and promote longevity in, again, mice and in humans. The Longevity Institute, which again is in Los Angeles, is directed by Dr. Longo and it includes over 40 faculty members focused on topics that range from uh, regeneration uh, to uh, dietary interventions that are aimed at improving health and lifespan and even treating specific disease processes. Uh, and we know that they are going to have significant breakthroughs in the very near future. Among the many uh, accolades that Dr. Longo has uh, received include the 2010 uh, Nathan Schock Lecture Award from the National Institute on Aging and the 2013 Vincent Cristofalo Rising Star Award in Aging Research from the American Federation for Aging Research. He is recognized global as a leader in the areas of aging and the uh, effects of nutrition upon aging. He has more than 106 peer-reviewed publications in journals that are very well respected, including Science, Nature, Cell, uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association, Circulation, Cancer, uh, Cancer Cell, the Journal of Translational uh, Medicine, and many, many others. Uh, Dr. Longo has been featured multiple times uh, in Time Magazine, and he uh, was originally uh, from Italy. He was born in Genoa, Genoa, rather, received his undergraduate degree from the University of North Texas, where he majored in biochem, uh, biochemistry with a minor in jazz performance. We see that a lot in these high achievers. Uh, creativity with uh, scientific focus. He received his PhD in biochemistry from the University of California, Los Angeles in 1997 and his postdoctoral training in neurobiology of aging and Alzheimer's disease at USC. 
He started his independent career in 2000 at the University of Southern California School of Gerontology, one of the first and leading programs for aging and education. So we're going to jump into our interview now. Very, very excited. And again, just so everybody knows, uh, the book is The Longevity Diet, and we'll be speaking with Dr. Walter Longo. Well, Dr. Longo, it's really nice to have you on the program today. Nice to be on it. Thank you for having me. Sure, and uh, we're going to be talking about your new book, uh, The Longevity Diet, and I want to just, um, let's just jump into some science, because I know our viewers are really interested in that. And, you know, I think the main purpose of your book uh, is that you have created this a fasting mimicking diet because it has such uh, wonderful uh, effects upon our genetic expression, upon reduction of inflammation, on energy production, etc. First, why do you want to mimic fasting? Um, the, well, the main reason is because of compliance and also safety. Uh, Water-only fasting historically has only been done in clinics. Uh, and, um, and it can still be done in clinics, but uh, for most people, uh, that's not possible. It's very difficult to do. And the fasting mimicking diet uh, solves that problem. Um, also, we think there are components, uh, ingredients uh, in the diet that have positive effects, for example, on stem cell activation um, and maybe autophagy. So, uh, so those are additional components that, of course, wouldn't be in a water-only fasting and they're present in a, in a fasting mimicking diet. So the we're going to get started, into exactly what it all means, the, the fasting uh, uh, mimicking diet. But what is it about fasting that is so good for the body that you want to make a diet that sort of mimics that? Why do, we, why do people advocate fasting in the first place? Uh, well, in, there are a number of reasons. Uh, uh, the main one which we uh, described uh, from my laboratory, I think, is the clearance of damaged cells uh, and also damaged components of cells. So in, 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 on one side, uh, the cells like the white blood cells uh, can be destroyed. And that sounds like a negative thing, but there are, for example, a few years ago we've shown how this can be effective in clearing autoimmune cells that are... Uh, attacking the, the uh, myelin in the spinal cord. So for multiple sclerosis, for example, this was a mouse work, but that showed that you can kill autoimmune cells and then turn on hematopoietic stem cells, so the stem cells of the body, and then in the refeeding moment, uh, the stem, those stem cells give rise to new, young, functional white blood cells, right? So that's one reason. At the cellular level, at the intracellular level, we know the autophagy goes on during fasting. Now we're trying to figure out, uh, and we're going to have a series of papers in the future about that. You know, but the intracellular uh, effects of the of the fasting, um, and uh, these are just a couple of the things that happen. Another one, for example, that is uh, remarkable is the are the effects on the visceral fat. So um, the the visceral fat is one of the only component that gets broken down specifically during fasting and fasting mimicking diets, and it doesn't get rebuilt during the refeeding period. Uh, so of course, this is obvious uh, benefits because uh, now you can lose visceral fat specifically without losing uh, muscle mass. Well, I want to go back to the first topic, and that is this, this notion of autophagy and you know, that uh, affecting the mitochondria as well, mitophagy. 
And I think it's a very good point for our viewers to understand that, yeah, while we'd like to repopulate our bodies and our brains with new cells, it's important to weed out the bad players. And uh, I think that it's quite clear that your research has shown that you are enhancing the scavenging ability of the body to rid itself of cells that are uh, less than fully functional and even cellular components that are less than fully uh, functional like, like uh, mitochondria. And your comment about reducing abdominal fat, I think visceral fat is also very uh, timely for uh, our viewers as we've just looked at a study relating abdominal fat to risk for dementia. So uh, beyond that, uh, what are some of the genetic uh, events that happen in individuals who are on, uh, who are fasting or on significant caloric restriction? Yeah, so this was actually the origin uh, of the diet. Uh, it came from our studies uh, uh, in, in the genetics of aging. And so first our identification of what I call the, the protein pro-aging pathway, uh, which are both the, uh, uh, the IGF-1, growth hormone IGF-1, and the Taurus cyskinase uh, genes. And, uh, and those are clearly involved. Uh, uh, now there's somewhat of a consensus uh, that they're involved in aging and age-related diseases. And the other pathway is uh, the PKA pathway. In, in simple organisms, it's RAS PKA, and I call it the sugar pathway because it's activated by, by glucose. Um, so fasting takes advantage of shutting down or certainly reducing the activity of, both, uh, of all three of these, growth hormone, IGF-1, Taurus kinase, and PKA. And by doing so, on one side, you have uh, protection, so the, the system becomes protected against uh, toxins both inside and outside uh, toxins and then also you have regeneration so by having low levels of thoracic kinase and pka and igf1 we've shown that that's how stem cells uh, become activated uh, now they become activated they stand by until the refining uh, part uh, occurs and this is also uh, you know why it's so important to understand mechanisms uh, because then you can exploit them to do good and avoid the bad. Uh, otherwise, uh, as we've seen, for example, for chronic color restriction, you get both the good and the bad. I, I just don't want that to get glossed over. And that is, you know, as we are in the depths of the biochemistry here and activation and suppression of various pathways, uh, at the end of your discussion, you said we want more of the good and less of the bad. And I think that's, you know, the take home message here. Uh, with respect to this intervention, this, this dietary intervention that I think you've shown in your book does tend to be amplified along with exercise. Can you talk to us about that? Uh, you, you're asking about the exercise component? Yes. Yeah, so exercise, I mean, there's no doubt that, that, that it's very important. It probably activates some of the same uh, repair and regeneration mechanisms that fasting and fasting mimicking diet do. And, um, and so in the book I talk about, I try to stick with data and, and data that is pretty well uh, supported by multiple studies. Um, so uh, I talk about 150 minutes uh, a week, uh, between 150 and 300, uh, but showing not much advantage of the 300 minutes of exercise versus the 150 minutes. So 150 minutes looks like a a good uh, a good uh, number of minutes for for exercise, some of which should be uh, strenuous, so it should be uh, pushing yourself. Uh, but maybe you know, 10, 20 percent of that is sufficient if if it is strenuous. So 
150 minutes a week of, of exercise with maybe uh, 30 of those minutes uh, being a little bit uh, more uh, strenuous. Well, I just, you know, if for people who think 150 minutes is, is scary or compelling, that's only 22 minutes a day. Uh, that, that's all you're, <clears throat> that's all we're asking. So, uh, you know, these are basically what you're saying is these are lifestyle choices that have a profound impact on some really important processes in the body that either open the door to disease or, or wellness. Yes, and, and in the book, I, I thought it was important to not just speculate, but to show clear examples. For example, I show, I talk about the monkey studies. This was not done by us, but it was done by Richard Weindruck at the University of Wisconsin, and showing how calorie restriction, this chronic calorie restriction, can completely eliminate diabetes and reduce cancer and cardiovascular disease in monkeys by 50%. So these are remarkable uh, achievements if you think about it. But the problem with car restriction is that the lifespan of these monkeys is unextended because by being pushed to the limit chronically like that so long, then you have other problems. For example, immunity might be uh, affected negatively, right? So I think the fasting mimicking diet in the longevity diet, the rest of the everyday diet that I described is really putting 25 years of, of our work together to say, uh, we think now we found a way to get all the benefits of calorie restriction and removing again all the, or the great majority of detrimental uh, problems. For example, a loss of muscle mass and, and being emaciated as you will, uh, uh, as if you were calorie restricted. Uh, you know, these, these are obvious problems that people don't want to, um, don't want to do or don't want to face. And, uh, I think the fasting, the periodic fasting making diet eliminates this. So again, uh, what, uh, you know, for our viewers, it, it's really getting the best of both worlds where you get the benefits of caloric restriction or fasting. And yet, uh, the downsides that you just mentioned, like emaciation, loss of muscle mass, uh, dysregulation of the immune system, are, are not as likely to happen uh, because you've created this way of, of, still cre of a diet that's good for you, but then mimics the notion of, of fasting. So before we get to the nuts and bolts of what that's all about, what went into that? What went into your um, ability to create this type of diet that takes the place of of fasting and caloric restriction? Well, um, I, I think the, the main thing, uh, again, uh, it was also finding out is fasting really beneficial and how do you do it? I mean, fasting is like saying eating. It doesn't mean anything, right? I mean, you could fast for two hours, you could fast for 12 hours, you could fast for 12 days, right? So which one, and is it beneficial? And the suspicion from the medical community was that it was not, you know, that fasting is actually detrimental. And this is uh, really uh, has been the, 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 the common belief until recently uh, by most doctors, uh, if not all doctors. And, and so now well, I think- you can't say all, because that would include me. <laughs> it, well, until recently, that's what I was saying. Okay. You know, I mean, recently, I think that uh, we, we started to see a small percentage of doctors uh, embracing it. But Historically, I would say there's very, very few, right? Um, and, and, and so I think it was important to, uh, to first um, uh, show what fasting can do. Uh, and this started, again, for us, started with bacteria and yeast and, and showing how you can starve simple organisms like that and they become longer lived and they become protected. Uh, so then if you have something uh, so far away from each other, like bacteria 
and yeast being uh, so protected by this, we, we figured that uh, this was going to go all the way to uh, potentially to humans. And then, you know, eventually we've shown that. So uh, I think it's important to first have the foundation on fasting. And then the fasting mimic diet, obviously, is a way to say now most people uh, cannot do water-only fasting. We, we, we've seen this uh, uh, firsthand when we tried this with cancer patients here at the USC Norris Cancer Center. And basically, the oncologist didn't want people to fast, and the patients didn't want to fast. So this is where, when we went to the National Cancer Institute, and they were very interested in, in, in sponsoring the research, uh, including clinical trials, on a fasting mimicking diet. So can you come up with a technology that you know uh, can match the, the power of fasting and maybe surpass it and make it safer and, uh, uh, and more doable by people? And so... Um, you know, then we had to go back to the biochemistry and to the molecular biology and the, the, what I, I, I talked about earlier, which is that how are the genes and the nutrients connected? So which amino acids, uh, which protein, uh, what about uh, carbohydrate, which type, what about fats, which type, how, long, how much? And so all of that, including and more, go into the uh, fasting mimicking diet on, on one side to trick the body uh, to think it's fasting. And on the other side, to making sure that the patient that, um, you know, some patient may come in, let's say a cancer patient could come in already in trouble nutritionally, right? And this is, uh, you know, very, very common. And so you don't want to push them over the edge with further uh, uh, malnourishment. And, and that's why it was important with the fasting mimicking diet to um, nourish the patient while we're starving. And so it's, it's a counterintuitive, but that's exactly what we're doing. We nourish and starve at the same time. You know, interesting because you know you hear people talking today how people how Americans are starving in the face of uh, food abundance just based upon their food choices. So, uh, you know, the work has been going on for some time. Uh, we've uh, you know been following the work of Dr. Mark Matson for a long time, uh, one of the pioneers, you know, especially as it relates to brain uh, function and viability of brain cells, both uh, you know in humans and certainly in in animals. Uh, so that uh, we know that what you're doing here is putting a low-level stress or a hormesis, a, a type of event, uh, on physiology, and the physiology responds in a way to protect itself. So you then develop this program that would work or that was acceptable, let's say, for cancer patients, and I think from then you extended it uh, for all the rest of, of individuals who may not be suffering from a specific uh, uh, disease entity, and uh, tell us, the, if you can now, let's go through the nuts and bolts of the program and how it specifically accomplishes the task uh, while at the same time isn't, isn't really you know, depriving people. Yeah, so the, the task, first of all, is complex. And, and so we hear a lot about intermittent fasting and ketogenic diets. And I really dislike these terms because they try to um, embrace uh, uh, everything and, or they embrace everything. And in fact, uh, uh, you know, a two-hour fasting and a, and a five-day fasting are, are completely different things. You know, one does very little and one can have tremendous effects, right? So, so I think it's important to start uh, um, talking about uh, exactly what we're talking about. How long is it and for what purpose, right? So the, um, the fasting mimicking diet achieves, is, is, it lasts, let's say, for uh, the regular uh, people, so for somebody relatively healthy, it tries to achieve multiple tasks. And one of them is, for example, 
making sure that there is there are enough days after the depletion of glycogen, right? So this is why it has to go for five days. It cannot go for half a day, one day, et cetera, as you, you hear many of these popular uh, intermittent fasting programs. Now, you know, I'm not uh, arguing against them. I'm just saying that we have to be careful, uh, you know, what the mechanisms are. And so we know the glycogen can be around for, for at least 10, 12 hours. And, uh, um, and probably the ketone bodies, in most cases, we don't see them going up very much for at least a couple of days. So that means that to really start many of these processes, for example, the brain switching to a ketone, ketone body dependent mode, you need two days minimum. And if you stop at two days, even if you did two days, you stop, you probably get very little benefit, right? This is why we go for five days. Uh, now, by, by day five, now the brain is reprogrammed into both a glucose dependent and a ketone body dependent mode. That's what we want to achieve uh, with that, just if we're talking about the brain. But this is not just the brain. For example, we've shown in our, in our uh, clinical study with multiple sclerosis that after seven days, the white blood cell count in people is decreased by about 20%. So, so now if you're thinking about multiple sclerosis, you, go, you have to go five, seven days probably to even see a 20% breakdown of the, the white blood cells. Uh, so just, just to give you some examples of how we think when we address a problem. So in healthy people, five days is probably ideal. Why? Because most people don't want to go for more than that. Most doctors are, are worried about making a patient at home go for more than, than five days. So five days turn out to be a very good compromise between efficacy, safety, and compliance. And, and I think now we're over 20,000 people have done it. Uh, in the US, UK, Italy, et cetera, and the safety record is extremely good. So we, we feel uh, pretty good about it. And, and, you know, and some people have done it with doctor supervision, some people have done it with dietitian supervision. But in general, these five days uh, um, uh, seems to work very well. And, and, you know, and the clinical trial, of course, uh, shows the results of, of what it can do. Um, clearly, <clears throat> one of the goals is to, is to enhance the production of ketone bodies. And as such, uh, what is the value of augmenting uh, the production of these uh, uh, ketone bodies with uh, precursors or with uh, things like medium chain triglyceride oil, coconut oil, et cetera? Um, it's, it's an interesting, uh, I mean, we don't know, right? I mean, there are some uh, studies that show advantages. Um, I mean, they're preliminary studies. They're, they're very promising. Um, so in the book, I talk about it, for example, with Alzheimer. I think it's a, it's a very good way to go, especially because, you know, an Alzheimer patient, uh, we're, we're about to start a clinical trial in Italy with Alzheimer disease uh, and fasting mimicking diet. But we had to develop according to what I just said, you know, a special diet, a higher calorie, uh, you know, mid-chain fatty acid, et cetera, are going to be included in it. Um, so uh, I think that uh, we, we have to wait and see. In general, I think that uh, having the natural ketone bodies and the reprogramming of the brain is the most important thing, right? So to have the brain go into this repair mode, uh, we really are starting to see the pattern of the fasting being maybe something that was always there to destroy damage, replace damage with new. And now, of course, we eat all the time and we don't see that. So is it possible that the brain is also doing that? And that's the idea. Now, can the exogenous ketone bodies achieve that? Probably not because they're probably 
pushing the system a little bit in the right direction, but they don't quite have the ability to uh, restart the, this embryonic-like program that we see in multiple organs that has the chance of really, in a coordinated way, taking out the bad and, and replacing it with the good. You made an interesting uh, comment there that uh, I think indicates that we are kind of emulating uh, the uh, appropriation of resources caloric-wise uh, of our ancestors. I mean, we did uh, experience times of caloric scarcity in which uh, these pathways would have been activated, survival pathways, if you will. Uh, and I think, you know, to, to put it in that context, I think in some small way kind of validates the underlying principle of the so-called paleo movement that we're just trying to um, emulate what our genome and what our physiology uh, was uh, has evolved to respond to. Uh, having said that, let me go back to this uh, notion of production of ketone bodies, but let's go beyond just the, the notion of uh, fuel uh, in terms of uh, the, the more efficiency uh, that's imparted by using ketone bodies as fuel. Let's talk for a moment about butyrate um, and more about, for example, its signaling molecule characteristics and what are the epigenic uh, considerations of having higher levels of beta-hydroxybutyrate? Well, you know, we, uh, we don't know, meaning that there are no studies um, on um, what happens if you otherwise keep, let's say, uh, caloric intake normal and have more beta-hydroxybutyrate. I think it's a scary direction. Um, if, uh, you know, um, unless there is a problem like Alzheimer's. Uh, uh, why is that? Well, because the system, uh, if you have beta-hydroxybutyrate or any ketone body, um, is going to get two signals, right? It's going to get the signal of glycolysis and standard metabolism, and at the same time, it's going to get the second signal that is the starvation response, but it doesn't know where to go. You know, the fasting-making diet avoids that because it basically uh, is caloric-restricted enough, and it just mimics the condition of the fasting, uh, but the um, having normal calorie and adding uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate uh, is potentially uh, problematic. Um, so uh, what does it do? Well, it pushes, of course, the system to use beta-hydroxybutyrate as a fuel source, and, uh, um, and uh, um, you know, the consequences long-term are unknown, uh, essentially. It's just a, uh, an alternative metabolic mode and, uh, and one that, uh, um, that um, potentially has beneficial effects. Uh, and it seems to be associated with regeneration, you know, probably because of what I said earlier, the fact that during starvation, you have to uh, be ready to rebuild. Most likely in the old days, at least, uh, when we start, we start for long periods. And, and you know, uh, in those long periods, the liver, the, the immune system, the lungs uh, and, and the muscle, et cetera, et cetera, they're all uh, undergoing atrophy, and so they will have to be rebuilt. And so I think that the ketone bodies are key uh, molecules in, in triggering uh, the rebuilding of all these systems, or at least in not interfering with the stem cell-based uh, uh, program that uh, has the job of rebuilding after starvation periods. Well, you know, certainly there's, uh, at least in our world uh, of, of brain-related issues, a lot of uh, great uh, information about being in ketosis uh, in terms of stimulating brain-derived neurotrophic factor to enhance, in, in, in the brain's case, neurogenesis, uh, i.e. stem cell activity. 
you talk in your book about <clears throat> the role of um, this diet uh, in terms of longevity. Is it fair to extend this uh, research from, uh, the, um, from the laboratory to humans in terms of uh, making uh, I, uh, references to longevity? Mm, well, uh, yes and no, meaning that, of course, we, we demonstrated that in mice, um, but we also have a human clinical trial. And um, in the human clinical trial, we uh, show changes in risk factor for multiple diseases and changes in markers for aging uh, that would suggest that almost for sure this person will live longer. Now, um, how do you demonstrate that, that a person will live longer on a diet? It's impossible. There is no, I mean, you could possibly do it if you took uh, people at very old ages with uh, uh, risk factor, high risk for a disease, like, you know, the, the job, the work that has been done in Spain with olive oil published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Yeah, it could be done potentially if you took 70-year-olds and basically say they have a cardiovascular uh, disease or early stages and then you know, you look at longevity, uh, but if you took our general population, it'd be almost an impossible study to do. So I would say that we've done as much as we can uh, to show uh, to show that this is probably going to be beneficial uh, for longevity. But you know, to demonstrate it, uh, it's it's premature to say I know that it will extend longevity. But if you start affecting uh, fasting glucose, triglyceride, cholesterol. Uh, blood pressure, systolic and diastolic, uh, CRP levels, um, et cetera, et cetera, and, and abdominal uh, fat, visceral fat, it, it's hard to imagine how that person will not live longer. Uh, now we're uh, we, in collaboration with Morgan Levine at Yale, we're about to calculate actually the biological uh, age after three cycles of the FMD. And even though, you know, I don't want to talk about uh, the results yet, I can't. But certainly, uh, I, 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 su I suspect that the biological age will decrease in the population, and not based on our idea, but based on, on algorithms and real numbers, will decrease in the people that have done multiple cycles of, of the FMD. So, um, you know, for our viewers, a lot of times, uh, you know, the, some of the criticisms of ideas are based on the fact that there haven't been uh, interventional uh, studies that have been performed using that specific criteria and that a lot of the things people talk about are extrapolations from uh, laboratory experiments and uh, using uh, animals, etc. But, you know, I want you to know that, uh, you know, from, from my perspective, looking at your information, you have done the very, very best possible job in connecting the dots that I think very much allows you to look forward and, and uh, make a statement that likely uh, what you're proposing here will extend life or, or enhance longevity. Uh, I, you know, I, I'm certainly willing, based upon what you've written in your 25 years of experience, uh, willing to, <laughs> to connect those dots, especially as it relates to existing research and certainly what you've got uh, in the pipeline. So uh, having said that, what can we look for from you over the next couple of years? Yes, and, and picking up from, from what you just said, absolutely. Uh, we've done a hundred uh, patient randomized trial that looks very, very good, um, but everybody's asking for bigger studies. So now we have in the pipeline a, a 400 patient um, um, metabolic syndrome trial, you know, early diabetes and metabolic syndrome trial. We have the Alzheimer one that we just got funded to do. Um, we are going to do a Crohn's disease uh, trial. 
We're finishing up uh, three or four different trials on cancer. Um, one is, has been done by University of Leiden in Holland, uh, and the other one here, USC, Mayo Clinic, MD Anderson. Um, so that's going to be finished pretty soon. Um, we have uh, trials on the prevention of cancer uh, for BRCA1, BRCA2 uh, subjects that are at high risk for, for breast cancer. Um, I think uh, these are just some of the, the ones. We have the diabetes uh, type 2 trial in, in Holland, also University of Leiden, that has been funded. So I think that, uh, you know, we, we really, uh, multiple sclerosis, now we, we're very close to start a multi-center trial with 10 different hospitals in Europe. Um, so we're, we're, we're going after, we're facing the, the, the facts. And um, you know, in some cases, it's not going to work. We, we, we know that. I mean, it's not a miracle. It's not going to work all the time for everybody. But I think that the, the effects are very powerful. And also, I wouldn't underestimate, you know, sometimes I worry that there are like the alternative and complementary group and then the traditional group. And, and we're basically, you know, for example, for cancer, it's very obvious. And when you combine the two, you get the most powerful effect, right? And so now with multiple sclerosis, I think we're going to see the same, that we're testing it with the FMD together with five different uh, standard of care drugs. And I wouldn't be surprised if the most powerful effects we see with the combination with one of these drugs, right? Uh, so, so I think that's also an important message to, to uh, uh, use all that is available, and especially with diseases that are, are, are very severe. But, uh, um, you know, for prevention, I think uh, maybe the combination of the FMD with a, with a diet uh, that I also describe in the book uh, is, uh, is the best way to go. And, um, and there too, you know, now we're talking to Loma Linda University about, uh, you know, can we do large uh, studies where we follow thousands of people that have, uh, let's say, a pescatarian, low protein, uh, but sufficient protein diet, plus the FMD, uh, can we follow them for years and show uh, beneficial effects, maybe, um, maybe on longevity uh, or maybe uh, just on markers of longevity. So that those are some of the things in the pipeline um, that uh, we, we look forward to doing it. That's super exciting. I, I want to uh, just go back to a couple of things you said. And uh, in passing, you know, you, you kind of mentioned that you're going to be involved in looking at uh, individuals carrying the BRCA1 or BRCA2 gene, which uh, people need to understand is a, a, a fairly powerful risk uh, gene in, in terms of how it relates, for example, to breast cancer and other issues. Uh, that said, you know, what you said I think was really very important, and that is looking at a dietary intervention uh, that might uh, have an effect in what some people would consider to be a, a genetic uh, die cast, that, you know, they're going to get a problem, and yet through a specific dietary intervention, you can reduce what may otherwise be a genetic predisposition. Similarly, with respect to carrying uh, any one of the many genes uh, or, or um, alleles that relate to Alzheimer's risk. For example, uh, looking at the APOE4 allele that deals with cholesterol metabolism and a couple of other cholesterol uh, metabolism gene uh, uh, SNPs, uh, we know that there is plenty of research now showing that we can counteract the genetic predisposition by making certain lifestyle uh, changes. In, in your case, uh, it would be dietary. In the case of offsetting APOE4, certainly dietary, but also uh, cardiorespiratory fitness has been shown to be effective in reducing some of the uh, biomarkers that are, are found, uh, the amount of uh, 
for example, beta amyloid in the spinal fluid is seen to be lower, uh, and t uh, phosphorylated tau protein seem to be lower in people who, though they can't, they carry the genetic risk factor, yet they're in higher levels of cardiorespiratory uh, fitness. So it's a new dawn that we are really pulling away from this notion of genetic determinism and more looking at genetic predisposition, which is where you fit in beautifully in terms of saying, hey, you know, you've, these are your genetic uh, issues that uh, you have, but look at how important this diet can be in changing gene expression, in offsetting uh, some of the risk that, that you may have inherited. So uh, it's really, what you're doing is really very, very exciting. And um, I think we all look forward to, to seeing what's next for you and how these uh, incredible studies are gonna pan out because uh, you know it's really getting to the heart of gene expression modulated epigenetically through the choices that we make in terms of our activities and our lifestyle choices. Let me yeah, mention one absolutely. other thing that came yeah, to and, mind. And, and you know, BRCA1 we pick because it's so extreme and you know you, you may have a chance of 85% chance of, of developing cancer. So if it works for the BRCA1, of course now, and we're doing both mice and humans right now, uh, so if it works for, that, for them, then I think it's going to work for everybody else that might not have uh, such a high risk for cancer. You know? Yeah, I mean, what a thing to consider that uh, when women are told that by virtue of their genetic issues, uh, that the best course of action for them is to have a bilateral mastectomy. And now we're hearing today from you that, you know, there's reason to believe that you can offset that genetic predisposition by making certain lifestyle changes. So, um, you know. Yeah, and, so I, and I don't want to discourage people from doing a mastectomy because obviously now we know it's very effective. But, the, but there are many women, I was shocked when I heard the percentage of women that refused a mastectomy. And so, and they have nothing, right, really. And, and that's, that was amazing to me. And, and so this is why we were addressing this because uh, uh, for whatever reason, and understandably so, a lot of women don't do it, and um, and they don't have an alternative. Yeah, and there was one other thing you mentioned, and that is the utility of what your uh, uh, diet will do, uh, and even looking at uh, markers, uh, various parameters that are measured in multiple sclerosis, not just clinical progression or recurrence, uh, and you know how it it bridges traditional and complementary. And uh, I think a, a classic example of that now is, you know, for years, those of us who have been involved in nutritional medicine and looking at complementary ideas have focused on a specific gene pathway, the NRF2 pathway, uh, as being sort of the guardian of, of brain health and regulator of neurodegeneration, knowing that traditional foods and spices like turmeric and coffee, caloric restriction, uh, higher levels of... Uh, of oxidative uh, stress, for example, enhance the body's ability to protect itself, in this case, through that NRF2 pathway, and how now uh, pharmaceutical industry has created a drug based upon this platform, dimethylfumarate, that works as an NRF2 activator, taking advantage of you know this pathway that is endogenous within us and has been amplified by our lifestyle choices. So. What an interesting example of, you know, of this cross-pollination then of traditional and complementary kind of approaches, which is certainly yes. what you're doing. I mean, yes, although I will say, you know, when there is a disease like Alzheimer or multiple sclerosis or cancer, the combination very well is probably going to be the way to go. 
in the prevention, I'm a little skeptical of the pharmaceutical approach um, because of, of uh, I, I think, a somewhat unsophisticated um, uh, 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 intervention or, or function, meaning that, you know, you now have a drug that blocks a pathway or enhances a pathway, you know, whereas the fasting and fasting mimicking diet really exploits something that has always been there. Yes. Uh, so it's probably not going to do damage. And in fact, it's going to be so coordinated to eventually do very, very good. Uh, the, the drug is, is blocking something usually. And the, the, the question is, what is that blockade? If, or let's say increasing in this case, you know, NRF2 activity. But what else is it doing? And, and what happens when you do that? But the body is not set to do that, right? So NRF2 goes up in their, in their calorie restriction because it's part of a protective program. But, uh, and then, or like, let's say, uh, cortisone, right? It's part of a, a fasting response uh, um, pathway. But what happens if you, say, increase cortisone all the time? We know what happens. It's not good, you know? And there is a lot of side effects of that. And so... Yeah, I'm, I'm worried that when we try to, uh, even in the prevention, at the prevention level, we try to always go to the drug that uh, we're underestimating the side effects of the drugs in the long run. It, and even calorie restriction has side effects, right? You know, so, so this is why, again, the fasting mimicking diet tries to avoid the, 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 even the negative effects of something that is dietary or even exercise can have a negative effect, right? But imagine, I think the drugs, almost unavoidably after 10, 20, 30 years of, of pushing a, a particular gene is going to start showing side effects. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned something earlier about the notion of this dietary approach, uh, not as a cure for cancer, but as an adjunct to more conventional therapies. I mean, uh, our viewers uh, have seen an interview with Dr. Thomas Seyfried, who has popularized getting into ketosis as an adjunct to more conventional uh, approaches to dealing with cancer, chemotherapy, radiation, surgery, etc. And I think then we should look upon the use of your type of program in the treatment of disease uh, as, you know, a tool in the toolbox. It's certainly a very, very important tool because it's not acting in just one way, but, you know, you're activating a, a variety of pathways that are salubrious, that are, you know, geared to retaining and maintaining health. Yes, and also, uh, uh, you know, replacing uh, damaged components with uh, with good components. This is why in the clinical trial, if somebody had low fasting glucose, let's say 75, in most cases, it didn't go down at all. Like in calorie restriction, it goes down further. You know, the, you might see 60, 55 even in, in fasting glucose. But in, in the periodic fasting mimicking diet, it might have gone up to 77, right? So now what that is telling us, and it happened for almost everything, um, so they're telling us that it's not really about lowering anything, it's about replacing something dysfunctional with something functional. And that's really, I think, the key. I mean, most people, when they're 20-year-olds, they don't have very many problems. Um, and uh, so I think the, as the tissues and cells become dysfunctional, then you develop insulin resistance. And, and, and all kinds of, of problems that are ending up in diseases. And I think that this periodic uh, fasting mimicking diet lasting five days is really has the job of, of clearing up some of the intracellular and cellular damage and, um, and replacing it with uh, components that work. 
Well, you know, you mentioned insulin resistance, and again, I, I would think that our viewers are really pretty well up to speed on uh, how important and how pervasive uh, the effects uh, of insulin resistance are throughout the body, not just the brain. Uh, and I think that, you know, the, the dietary program that you're working on, you're developed and you talk about in your book, uh, I think one of the main things you're, you're helping uh, is this is insulin resistance, in other words, insulin sensitivity. And certainly as it relates to the brain, as it relates to IGF-1, I think uh, that might be one of the main things that you're accomplishing here in terms of, of the health aspects of, of the program. Yes, uh, so we've shown that uh, insulin uh, sensitivity both in the uh, clinical trial, but also very clearly in the mouse studies with uh, type 2 diabetes uh, models, the DBDB mice, um, we've shown very clearly that uh, this can affect, uh, well, it can affect regeneration in the pancreas, so making new insulin producing beta cells, but at the same time, making the muscle cells, et cetera, more functional and making insulin, uh, less insulin uh, work uh, better. Mm -hmm. Now, any uh, comment on how the dietary program uh, might affect the gut microbiota? We are about to uh, submit that. And uh, so, and this is part of a, um, of a Crohn's disease study, um, which also triggered uh, a clinical trial, which we're about to start here at USC. And so, let's just say they're very positive, uh, very positive results, and um, which involved the microbiota, and uh, in fact, which may be centered on the microbiota. Who knew? Well, listen, I want to thank you for your time. Um, I've really, really enjoyed our interview today, our time together. It's just incredible work that you're doing. And I will encourage all of our viewers to read this book, buy this book and read this book. Um, there's terrific information here. Uh, and again, I want to uh, thank you for joining us and praise you for the work that you're doing. Uh, thanks a lot. And by the way, all my royalties go to... Uh research, go back to research. So this allow us to do more, many of the clinical trials that, that I just uh, listed. Well, that's an important point for all of our viewers that buying the book supports the research and we'll all be better off for that. Thanks a lot. Okay. Talk to you soon. Bye for now. Okay. Bye. I'm sure you could tell that uh, I enjoyed that interview immensely. Dr. Longo is doing some amazing work, uh, you know, application of really dedicated laboratory science and research uh, to the clinical arena and to see what the effects are of what he's discovering on actual treatment trials. So very, very exciting information. Again, here is the book. I would encourage you uh, to read it, The Longevity Diet. His name is Walter Longo, PhD. Uh, what an honor to spend time with uh, such a creative uh, and resourceful individual. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Dr. David Perlmutter here on The Empowering Neurologist. Bye for now.